There were only several books inside the New Testament contested. They were easily determined, no, these are the Word of God. And so it was all settled in the late 300s until you get to the 1500s. And again, what happened then? Well, you get Martin Luther saying, there is no purgatory in the Bible. And the Roman Catholic Church saying, oh, yeah, watch this. And they put the Apocrypha in the Bible and said, there, see, there is purgatory in the Bible. And the Reformed people and the Protestants said, yeah, not so fast with the Word of God, buddy. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Church here in Joppa, Maryland. And here's our topic today. I'm not going to name it yet. I'll just kind of introduce it to you. So I've had several people ask me recently this question. Um, how do we know we got the right books in the Bible? Because wasn't it just people? It was humans, fallible humans, who figured out that one's in, that one's out. So how do we know we have the right books in? This question really takes two forms. One is, how do we know that we didn't miss books that should be in? They're not in the Bible, but they ought to be. They're out there somewhere. Like a guy in our church asked me recently, uh, I think he kind of thinks the Apocrypha ought to be in the Bible. So we miss some. They ought to be in there, but they're not. Or the other form this question takes is, how do we know that there aren't books in there that shouldn't be? They should have been excluded, but they got in there. Like, how do we know Hebrews really belongs? How do we know 1 John really belongs? How do we know we got it right? That's our topic for today. So this is under the broad heading of Bibliology, the study of the Bible, and it's a subheading under that, and the name of the subheading is Canonicity. It's not about canons. Canonicity, where do we get that? So the Greek word that comes into our English as, as canon is a word that meant measuring stick. So they didn't have a sliding rule like we do. They didn't have a yardstick like we do, but they would have a measuring stick, and you know this stick was this long, and it's a cubit. That was their measuring stick. So the idea of referring to the books of the Bible, those that should be in the Bible, as the canonical books of the Bible means they have been measured. And the canonicity refers to by what standards, by what inch markers, by what three-foot markers were they measured? How did we measure the books and know that one belongs in and that one belongs out? How did we establish the canon of the Bible? So that is our topic for today. And it's important for a bunch of reasons. Well, one, just because people ask about it periodically, but also for this reason. One of the devil's constant themes is to get people to doubt God's word. Remember, uh, the Lord Jesus told Peter that he's going to be tempted and he's going to deny him three times. Peter said, no, Lord, I would never do that. Well, he did. And the Lord said, Peter, uh, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat, sift you to separate you from faith, you from believing, you from trusting in the word of God, uh, you from trusting the gospel. But I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. And when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. So he's to strengthen their faith that they would trust the word. This is something the devil's always doing, trying to get God's people and those who are not yet God's people not to believe the Bible. Maybe we got the wrong books in. Maybe the books that are in there shouldn't be there. How do we know? So my objective is to give you some real clear and simple answers to that question. And they are clear and they are simple. And you can know, you can have assurance, absolute assurance, that all the books in your Old Testament and all the books in your New Testament are the books that God wants you to have in your Bible. You can know that. So that's where this podcast is supposed to take you. So let's start off with the Old Testament, the Old Testament canon. How did we figure out which books should go in the Old Testament? Did they get it right? How did it work? It worked very simply. It worked like this. 
If a man who was a recognized prophet in Israel, so Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Malachi, you name them. If a man who was a recognized prophet wrote a book and handed it to God's people and said, this is from the Lord, this is thus saith the Lord, they accepted it as the word of God. So it was just book by book as another prophet accepted as a prophet, wrote a book, uh, that book became part of the Bible. And there was never any contest. There was never any disagreement. They never had any big church council and said, let's see, we have these, all these books. Some are in, some are out, which are which. No, you just started with Genesis, and they said, that's the word of God. And then you got Exodus, that's the word of God. And all the way down to Malachi, that's the word of God. And there was never any battle over it, no conference. The word of God was accepted book by book as it came out. Very simple. Furthermore, the Old Testament, as we have it, and as they had it back in the first century of the church's existence, back in the time of Jesus, the Old Testament we have is the very same Old Testament, the same books they had, and those are the same books that Israel of old had. In other words, the Bible that Jesus authorized because he referred to it. He showed them from Moses and all the prophets the things concerning himself. Those are the same books we have in our Old Testament. So the Lord Jesus really authorized, he put his imprimatur, his stamp of approval on the books that we have, the 39 books of our Old Testament. So Jesus Christ approved it. Furthermore, the Old Testament that we have, same one they had in the first century, is confirmed by the writers of the New Testament in many ways. They cite all kinds of, not every single, but most Old Testament books, and they say, as it says in the, you know, in the scriptures, or they say, as the word of the Lord says, or whatever. They treat the Old Testament that you and I have as the word of God. So the Old Testament we have is the same one that first century believers have. It's the same one that Israel had, the same one Jesus had, the same one that the apostles had, and the 39 books of the Old Testament actually were not under any contest, were never contested until we got to the time of the Reformation. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but what happened in the Reformation? Well, Martin Luther said, I don't find any purgatory in the Bible. And unless you can show it to me in the Bible, I'm not going to believe it. And here's what happened. The Roman Catholic Church at that point said, hmm, we don't find it in the Bible either, but we do find it in the Apocrypha. Let's canonize the Apocrypha and make them Bible. And in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church actually did that. They said, oh, we're going to add the Apocryphal books to the Bible so we can get uh, uh, purgatory in there and take that Martin Luther. But the Reformed people and the Protestants never agreed. We all we have the same Bible that the Reformers had, same Bible that the Apostles had, same Bible that Jesus had, same Bible that Malachi had, same Bible that the Old Testament people had uh, as it grew to be complete. So to summarize our brief discussion of Old Testament canon, it, it was book by book. As, as the next book was written, and the only criteria applied was, really, did this come from one of God's prophets? And if it came from Isaiah, if it came from Jeremiah, then it's in. It's the word of the Lord, and it's, it's part of our sacred book. That's the Old Testament canon. Very simple. Well, what about the New Testament canon? Well, it's just about as simple, but a little more complex. Here's the part that's just about as simple. So the same thing happened with the New Testament as happened with the Old Testament. Book by book, as an apostle or someone working right like under the direct uh, mentoring or tutelage of an apostle, as an apostle put forward a new book for the people of God, it was accepted as the word of God. So when Romans came out, they, they said, this is Romans, this is, this is the word of God, and they made it part of their Bible. 
Bible. And as the Gospel according to Matthew came out, this is God's Word, and they made it part of their Bible. And book by book, over over the time of the first century, uh, the people of God added the New Testament books that we have to their Bible. Even during the Bible times, we see that this happening because, let's say, Peter in A.D. 68 calls Paul's writings, all of them, writings plural, he calls them Scripture, 2 Peter 3.16. So that was a technical term for the Word of God, the Bible, the sacred book. And Peter says Paul's writings are Scripture. They're already canon. They're already added to the Bible in AD 68. Or for another example, Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 takes the book of Deuteronomy and the gospel of Luke and calls them both scripture. He cites them together, one from Deuteronomy, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, Deuteronomy, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. That's from the gospel according to Luke chapter 10 and verse 7, and Paul puts them together and calls them both scripture. So what are we saying? The Christians of the apostolic era did the very same thing that the saints in the Old Testament did, book by book, as they were written by the apostles or people working very closely with apostles. As those books came out, they added them to their canon, and their Old Testament grew, and they got rather it got a New Testament growing on, on the front end of it. So that's how it went. And it was very simple, just like the Old Testament was simple. And if we go past the time of the apostles just a little bit, we find even more of this. The early church fathers were, were equating the New Testament writings with the Old Testament writings, calling them both Scripture. For example, in A.D. 115, a disciple of John—John John lived to about A.D. 90 or so—a disciple of John named Polycarp. Polycarp. Mothers, you might not want to name your child Polycarp, but it wouldn't be a bad middle name anyway. Or maybe you do want to name them Polycarp. I'm, I don't know. I'm afraid they'll get called Poly or Carp. Neither one of those comes out too good, all right? So anyway, but uh, Polycarp, a disciple of John, takes the Psalms and takes Ephesians and together calls them Scripture. Here's a quote. In the sacred books, as it is said in these Scriptures, Ephesians and Psalms, and he cites Ephesians and Psalms. A few years later, Clement of Alexandria cites Isaiah and Matthew and calls them Scripture. So again, in identifying the New Testament documents as Scripture, it was not that gradually over time the church had Romans for a long, long time, and then one day said, hey, maybe we ought to include this book in the Bible. And then for a long, long time they had First Peter, and somebody finally said, hey, maybe this should be part of the Bible. It wasn't like that at all. When First Peter was written, it came from an apostle just like when the Old Testament written, it came from, an, from a prophet. And it was immediately accepted as the Word of God and added to the canon of God's Word. So gradually, over time, um, the whole New Testament came together, uh, the final books coming in uh, from John, like the book of Revelation was probably the final book added to it. So that's the gathering of the canonical books of the New Testament. It was just about as simple as the gathering of the canonical books of the Old Testament. It was simple. But here's how it became more complex. So early on, as the various books came out, as Paul wrote Romans, it was added to the Bible. As Peter wrote First Peter, it was added to the Bible. And that was that. But over time, then there came to be some question. There came to be some debate about, well, wait a minute, did we add the right books? Do we have the ones in there that should be in there? Are there some that have been excluded that should be in there? And so when you get into the 100s, the 200s, the 300s, there are really two problems that emerge. One problem is some of the great church fathers, just think of like a famous pastor in the early uh, early 100s, 
early 200s. Uh, some of the, the church fathers had slightly different lists of which books they had for themselves canonized, which books made up their New Testament. So that was one problem. Hmm, we need to get these fathers together and have a debate or something and figure out who's right and who's wrong. Uh, is Hebrews really in or is Hebrews not in? Some of the fathers had slightly different lists. Another problem was, as time went on, well, there arose these people that we call heretics, and the heretics did several things. One is they messed with the actual text of the Bible, like they're copying a Bible and then they're going to put their copy forward to be used by the people of God, and they changed things in it to fit with their heresies. But they also omitted certain texts, certain passages. Uh, they rejected, for example, uh, much from the Old Testament. They rejected the virgin birth passages in the New Testament. They rejected the humanity of Jesus Christ, and so they rejected Matthew, Mark, and John. They edited versions of Paul's letter and sent them out there, Paul's letters. And so even though the New Testament scriptures were early on received, book by book as they came out, hot off the press, so to speak, over time there developed some confusion because, again, some church fathers had slightly differing lists, and some heretics were coming out with some radical different views of what ought to be in the New Testament and what should not be there. So problems arose, and how were those problems settled? Well, here's what the church did. They had what we now call great church conferences. What's a great conference? What's well, like a conference today? But in their case, it was a conference of the great scholars and the great pastors and the great theologians. It was like, let's get them all together and you know, meet for a month or whatever and figure out, let's hash this out together and figure out which books should be in and which books should not be in. So there were a number of conferences, but there were two great conferences. I'll give you the names of those two. One was called the Synod of Hippo. Has nothing to do with hippopotamuses as far as I know. Hippo was a place in North Africa, however, and there was a great synod, a great conference there in AD, in the year of our Lord, 393. They came up with, guess what? Guess, guess which New Testament they decided was the New Testament? The same one you have, our 27 books. The other great, great conference was the Synod of Carthage, also in North Africa. It was held on, we have the exact date, on August 27, 397. It was finalized. And guess which books they came up with for their New Testament? The exact same 27 books that you have in your New Testament. Also, by the way, two key persons, towering individuals who were involved in those synods were the great Augustine, maybe you've heard of him, like my favorite Christian book, aside from the Bible, on the planet is Augustine's Confessions. And Augustine was there. He was part of this. And he argued for, quote, no more and no less, end quote, than the 27 books. And the great church father, Jerome, was there also agreeing that these 27 are the books. So there were these great church conferences to try and settle some of the difference that had evolved over time. Well, what did they do at those conferences? They, they considered the existing books that were already accepted and, and looked at them again. Like, should Hebrews really be in there? Hebrews was one of the contested books, so they looked at Hebrews. Should it really be in there? And they looked at, are there any books out there that we missed? And there were a few candidates, only a few really. And let's look at those and, and consider together, should they be in or should they remain out there? Now, here's what you want to know. Almost all of the of the possible additional books to our 27 were very easily, very quickly turned down by the early church because to them, these other books were so obviously not scripture. In fact, there were actually only three other books besides our 27 
that got any serious consideration, that were even given any any thought, and they were ultimately not included. Let me tell you what they are. They are the Didache. Now, I should just tell you that when I became a believer, I'm 17 years old. I think when I was 18, the pastor who led me to the Lord gave me some books. And one of the books he gave me was a copy of the Didache. And I tried to read it, and I thought, what in the world? I couldn't make it through that thing. Years later, I, I had to read it for a class. So I've read the Didache. It's like early doctrinal. It's, it's a systematic theology, if you will. So the Didache was one they looked at. Hmm, maybe that should be in. Another one called the Shepherd of Hermes. Hmm, maybe that should be in. And the third one, and the only other one they looked at, was the first letter letter of Clement of Rome. So they had those three. Hmm, maybe these three should be in. But even those three were very quickly and very easily rejected. And uh, you can kind of see why. We have them all. All three exist in our day. They are, to use the scholar's term, extant. And if you read them, it is very evident that the writers of them themselves did not consider those writings to be Scripture. They did not consider them to be on par with what Paul wrote or Peter wrote or Matthew wrote or anybody else wrote. So there was really no serious consideration that even these three books were the Word of God. In other words, no one at these great church councils, these great early synods said, Oh, I think we're missing some books that ought to be in. No one. So the church was very confident that the 27 books you have were the only ones that really warranted to be called Scripture. And we'll talk about how they measured them, why they canonized them soon. There was, however, some controversy about some of the books that had been accepted, some that were in. Like I mentioned Hebrews, and there's also Second Peter and Jude, and the epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. There was some controversy over those. Let's give those a special look. Are we sure they should be in? So there was no controversy over Matthew, over Mark, over Luke. There was no controversy over Romans, Galatians, First and Second Timothy, and many, many more. But there was some question about, let's look at Second Peter, Jude, the epistles of John, book of Revelation, and the book of Hebrews. So at the Synod of Hippo in North Africa, 393, and at the Synod of Carthage, Carthage also in North Africa, 397, the church gave a serious look at those, Second Peter, Jude, the epistles of John, Revelation, Hebrews, and they ask, should they all really be in? And at the end of their conference, and these were the people who lived closest to the time of the original, they knew the language better, they knew the culture better, et cetera, et cetera, and they definitively decided, yes, all of those books are the Word of God, and they should be in our New Testaments. So uh, there was really no, no question about that. And in addition to those church conferences, other church fathers who followed that time chimed in in one way or another. For example, the great church father Athanasius, Bishop of Alexander, in 367, uh, he published his list of New Testament books, and there was no debate and no clamor about them, and they had our 27 books in them, and everybody agreed on this. That was A.D. 367. So, all right, what am I saying? The church fathers, once some did question, did arise. Hmm, did we get the right books in? Early on, everybody just accepted the books as they came out, just like they had done with the Old Testament. But over time, then some people said, wait a minute, did we get it all right? Some great church conferences, great church fathers were there, and they decided, actually, the 27 books that are in our New Testaments, they are the correct books. So now we come to the question of, well, how did they decide? By what standards? By what measuring stick? What were the criteria that helped them to decide, yes, we actually have the right thing in? It would be like 
if, uh, and this happens periodically in the art world, if somebody says, well, we've just found a new Van Gogh. It's been lost for a long time, but we found a new Van Gogh. And all the art community goes, right, yeah, right. Let's get the experts to look at it and we'll see. And they do whatever they do to figure it out. And then they come out and say, no, it's a fraud and it's a phony and here's how we know why. They have some ways they can determine that. They have some criteria by which they can test that. So um, there were three tests applied at these great church councils. Actually, I'm going to add a fourth to them, but there were at least three that they used uh, to test and decide, does this book get in the New Testament? The number one test, by far the most important one, the one that weighed the most was simply this, is the book apostolic? Just like in the Old Testament, did one of the prophets write it? And if so, then it's in. It's the Word of God. So did one of the apostles. You have apostles and you have apostle prophets. Did one of the apostle prophets write it, or at least did one of their close associates write it under their oversight, under their tutelage, learning from them, traveling with them, experiencing what they experienced, and so on? Was it a recognized apostle prophet who wrote it? That was by far the biggest test. And in each case, with all of our 27 New Testament books, each one was either written by an apostle or written by somebody working in close uh, association with or under the tutelage of an apostle. So, uh, for example, let's take Romans. That was just in. There was never any question about Romans. That was written by Paul. We know it's written by Paul. We know Paul was an apostle prophet. We know what he writes or the commandments of the Lord. It was in. There was never question about whether it's in. Matthew was not questioned. John was not questioned. But Luke... Luke was not one of the apostles. So how did Luke get in? Well, it's understood that Luke traveled with Paul. He was a companion of Paul, and he wrote in strict association and careful association with Paul and under the oversight of Paul. So Luke was received as being basically Pauline teaching in Luke's language. What about Mark? Same thing with Mark. He was really close with Peter. And so Luke and Mark weren't apostles, but they worked very close with apostles, and so their works were accepted. Same with James and Jude. They were blood brothers of Jesus to start with, and they were part of the apostolic leadership of the early church. They worked very closely with the early apostles, and so James and Jude were received into the canon of Scripture. So by far, the most important thing was just simply this, is it apostolic, either directly apostolic or indirectly apostolic by somebody who's working with and under one of the apostles? That was the big thing. Same as the Old Testament, same thing in the New Testament. So at these great conferences, they decided that all 27 books of your New Testament were apostolic in their doctrine, and they should be included. Here was the second canon. Here's the second measuring stick. They asked themselves, well, is it orthodox? That is to say, does it teach the same things that we find in the books we've already clearly accepted? Does it teach? Does it does its teaching conform to books that are already received as canon? For example, we all know that Romans came from Paul, and Romans is the word of God. So we're going to look at Hebrews and decide. Hmm, we're not sure about Hebrews. We don't know of who wrote Hebrews. We're not sure it's the Word of God. There are some doctrines in Hebrew. We're not sure. They might clash with Romans. So they're asking, is Hebrews orthodox? Does it fit with Romans that we already know to be orthodox? So let me just stick with Hebrews for a minute. The problems in Hebrews were some of Hebrews chapter 6, good old Hebrews chapter 6. Some of what's in Hebrews chapter 6 can be misunderstood to mean that a true believer can lose their salvation. 
that you can be in Christ and later fall out of Christ. And so they said, well, wait a minute, that's not orthodox, because we know the rest of the clearly apostolic New Testament books teach that once you're in Christ, you're always in Christ. So, hmm, we're not sure about Hebrews because of chapter 6. How did they resolve that? they became more careful in how they interpreted Hebrews chapter 6. And they understood that Hebrews chapter 6 means some people look like believers, but turn out in the end not to be true believers. They were never regenerate. They never had hearts for Christ. And so no problem with Hebrews chapter 6. Furthermore, whether you agree with them or not, and most scholars today probably wouldn't agree with them, but the early fathers at these conferences decided, uh, by the way, we think Paul did write Hebrews I'm still an advocate of that. I'm kind of, I'm sort of a voice in the wilderness. I'm kind of alone on that one, but I kind of like Paul for Hebrews. Maybe Apollos is a close second. Maybe Luke would be a third somewhere in there. But anyway, they determined it was written by Paul and its teaching is orthodox. And so the book of Hebrews is in. So uh, they would ask, is it apostolic? Is it orthodox? Third, they would ask this question. Here's the third measuring stick they would apply to a book to decide, does it really belong in the Bible? Uh, was the book in question widely received by the early church? So we're, we're down in the 300s. They're looking back into the first century and saying, did those people widely receive Romans, Hebrews, Second Peter uh, as the word of God? So for example, uh, Galatians was circulated early on in the churches of Galatia. It was widely accepted by the people of God as the Word of God, and other books, and so on. And so the second, third, fourth century church looked back and said, this was received by the early Christians, and so we believe it is Scripture. Uh, even, you know, you have Peter saying Paul's letters are Scripture earlier on. And so those were the standards. So early on, the books were received by everybody as they came out book by book. Later on, there arose some questions. Hmm, do these really belong in? Are there any out there that should be in that didn't get in? And there were heretics doing funny things, ungodly things with the Word of God to make it all even more challenging. But by the late 300s, all the controversy was ended, very easily ended. There weren't many books out there and the three that were out there were easily considered not to be the Bible. There were only several books inside the New Testament contested. They were easily determined, no, these are the Word of God. And so it was all settled in the late 300s until you get to the 1500s. And again, what happened then? Well, you get Martin Luther saying, there is no purgatory in the Bible. And the Roman Catholic Church saying, oh, yeah, watch this. Shh. And they put the Apocrypha in the Bible and said, there, see, there is purgatory in the Bible. And the Reformed people and the Protestants said, yeah, not so fast with the Word of God, buddy. And so the Apocrypha didn't make it into Scripture. The Reformers rejected the Apocrypha. I hope you will, too. By the way, I've read them, and they don't read at all like Scripture. Nothing else reads like Scripture. Because Scripture has both a divine and a human author. Other books on the planet do not have both a divine and human author, and you can tell the difference when you read them, all right? Go, go and read the Apocrypha. Actually, don't. It'd be a waste of your time. But uh, they're nothing like the Word of God. So th they asked, was it apostolic? Was it orthodox? Was it widely received early on? And, but here's a fourth thing. This wasn't part of their list. This wasn't one of their measuring sticks. But it's certainly one of the things that matters to us. It helps convince us that they all got it right and that the 27 books of the New Testament and the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have are the correct ones. And it's simply this. It, it comes down to, it ultimately comes down to, 
Do you trust God in his providence? So it goes like this. So God wants to give his people his word, his truth. He's God. He's pretty capable at what he does, right? He's God. He wants to give it to us in written form. He wants it verbal and written so we can all have it, look at it, make copies of it, compare it, you know, study it, and so on. He wants us to have his word verbal, written, in, in book or parchment form, early on parchments. So here's the question. Do you think God would get that right? <laughs> I mean, is he capable? He's certainly capable. Do you think he'd be motivated? He's certainly motivated. Do you think it would matter? It would certainly matter. Ultimately, we can say, I also believe, in addition to the canons we already looked at, the canons that were used to decide in, out, in, out, we can also rest at this point in church history and just say, I really believe that God superintended the process to make sure that we got the books in the Bible that he wants us to have in the Bible. Like, let's put it the other way around. If we are missing books in our Bible, books that are supposed to be there, and if we have books in our Bible that shouldn't be there, they ought to be out of the Bible— God really didn't do a very good job of getting his people his word, did he? And he gave the devil a real playground for saying, ha, has God said? You can't even get the Bible straight. He can't even get his word to you right. So trust that God was successful. He communicated with humans via print. He did it right, and he did it well. So what am I saying? Getting near the bottom line here, folks. We have every reason to believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, as we have them, are the Word of God complete. We're not missing any books. We haven't added any books. These are the 66 books that have both a divine and a human author. These are the books that come from God. So please be strong in faith. Stand upon your Bible. This is God's holy word. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. And it is sure. So put it to rest in your soul. Trust that we have it right. We have God's word. Now I'm going to read to you from one of my favorite living theologians. Actually, my favorite living theologian. This is John Frame, and his book is titled The Doctrine of the Word of God. And on page 138, where he's on the topic of canonicity, he writes... We should, however, join with all the church of all ages in the presupposition that God intended the new covenant in Christ to be attested in writing, and that the apostles were charged with bringing the written word as well as the oral word before the world. Nor can we doubt that God's intention to provide such written revelation was successful. Don't doubt God's success in getting his intended word into print. Thus does Scripture attest itself together with the witness of the Holy Spirit. So we can be sure, he concludes a little later, that the canon of 27 New Testament books now universally accepted in the church is God's personal word today. And the canon is closed. That's canonicity. Hope it helped you. You like this? Please share it with a friend, give us a like, and um, look for us again in two weeks. It's been a pleasure being with you. That's Grounded for today. 